business ourselves. They're coming. It can't be. Where is everyone? Hello, survivors, and welcome back to the Apocalypse Post cast, a podcast. I'm your host, Makeshift, and today we're going to be talking to a puppet maker and prop designer who's worked on Doctor Who and Torchwood, also the man behind the post-apocalyptic styling of salvaged wear, and finally we're going to talk to a LARP creature designer responsible for some of the most intense costumes I've ever seen. Luckily for me, they're all the same person. Welcome to the show, the UK's Mark Cordry. Oh, hi, Mike. Thank you for having me on. Thanks so much for coming on. I'm really excited to get to talk to you. Oh, likewise. I, this, this is great. It's so, another human being to talk to. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, because you guys are still in like full lockdown. I know here in Tennessee that we've got a, a looser version of quarantine, but you guys are still in stage one, right? Oh, I mean, yeah, that's, it's not quite zombie apocalypse yet, but it feels like it. Yeah, I haven't been outside the house for what feels like half my life now. Oh my goodness. Yeah, we we still get to um, go shopping here and um, restaurants are open for takeout, so we do a lot of that. Uh, they're also open for dining in in limited capacity, wow. uh, but we try to avoid that one. Yeah, well, th- there's nothing like that open. What I'm missing most is the pubs. I haven't been down to a pub for <laughs> close to a year now. And I bet. That's really starting to tell. No. <laughs> oh my gosh. Yeah. I, uh, I, th- I think that, you know, that's where we find so much social interaction in the real world is, is just being able to go out and, and hang out with strangers and have a drink. Right. Yeah. I mean, it just, it's, it's the real simple basics that you realize when you can't do that at the end of a working week, you go, yeah, Friday night, just go down to the local pub, meet a few mates, have a f- couple of drinks and, just let off some steam and not being able to do that for weeks, months on end is just like, whoa, okay, that really was an important little valve to let off some pressure. <clears throat> so yeah, yeah I'm you, missing that. Yeah. You didn't realize how important just getting out of the house was. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah. Yeah. All right. So yeah, I, I'd like to talk to you a little bit about your career and, and we're going to, we're going to slowly make our way uh, back to the apocalypse, but I want to start with, You've got 37 years of prop making. How did you get started in that? Oh, God. Um, <clears throat> well, uh, I guess basically as a kid, the only thing I was really any good at was making stuff and coloring in. I mean, what I mm-hmm. do now is just glorified coloring in, basically, in 3D. <laughs> um, so I've always made things. It's, I've always been artistically inclined at school. The only thing I was really any good at, the only thing I got good grades in was art. And uh-huh. it's kind of something which is is kind of me. I'd, I've yeah. never really been any good at anything else, I think, is the reason why I ended up doing what I'm doing now. <laughs> so it was a true calling. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you could call it that. That sounds much better than I was crap at everything else. <laughs> and what was your like? What was your first professional job? Do you remember? My first professional job. Um, Tricky, because when I left college, when I'd finished my degree, I started up my own company running a LARP. Um, Uh Whether you could call that a real job, I don't know. I guess my proper employment came when I moved to Cardiff, where there was quite a, a reasonable TV production, nothing on the scale that it is these days. Um, but I was employed by a friend 
who uh, was a few years above me in college. And he had a props making company over there called Talisman. And uh, he employed me as uh, one of his main people. I did a lot of the sculpting and design work for the various commissions that he got. So, yeah, that would be my first working for my friend who sadly now passed. He passed away last year, Um, Uh Bill Talbot. So a shout out to to him. Yeah. Um, Wild. And you you eventually worked on some incredible shows like Doctor Who and its spinoff Torchwood. I'm a big fan, by the way. (laughs) And and they both had some they would both routinely kind of go through these apocalyptic and and steampunk imagery. Um, I mean, with Doctor Who, it was like almost every episode, some world was going through its own apocalypse. Right. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, it's, it's kind of Doctor Who mainstream of hey something's going to end really badly yeah <laughs> and um like how would you explain well can, can first off can you explain what you did on those shows and describe the art style that you were going for or that the team was going for um well i was head of props fabrication so <clears throat> my very very small department was responsible for all the hand props a lot of the uh, set dressing on the spaceships and stuff or the tardis and that was during the christopher eccleston and the first season and a half of david tennant okay <clears throat> as far as the the approach goes i mean i was part of the art department so um i was working to most of the time to designs which were handed down to me um especially uh they had some very very good concept artists one of them uh who i'll name check is matt savage who mm-hmm. has since gone on to work on star wars does has done a lot of the star wars stuff and big major hollywood films and he was one of the the core concept artists and the way it would work is that the the art department would come up with these concepts. Those would then be passed down the line to us. We would look at them and go, we've got no budget. And as it turns (laughs) out, no time to make this. So we would do our best to interpret those designs, um, which is not, I, I guess from the art department's position is not the ideal because, you know, a concept artist would very much like to have their whole concept realized. But we were very much in the position that we have no facilities, we have very little budget, and we have very little time because everything was just rolling, 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 constant deadlines. Um, yeah. So we just did our best to interpret things. And basically, that came down to finding lots of random pieces, skip hunting, car boot sales, Uh going down the local hardware shop, finding shapes and putting them together, Um, (laughs) trying to approximate what had come down from the art department. And that's literally how we worked. Uh, I think it's better now, but I mean, this is many years since, and the production was kind of a kick-ass scramble at the beginning. Uh So, yeah, I'm proud of what we did, um, but it was... It was very much an approximation of what was handed down to us that we managed to achieve. Gotcha. Yeah, it seemed like during the Matt Smith years is when the budget kind of started ballooning a little bit. You could kind of see a difference in production value. What Do you think it would have been a different situation for you if you were on the show during those higher budgets? Oh, I think so, yes. Um, I mean, strangely, though, I think it might have been less satisfying because mm. we would have had to 
adhere much more closely to the designs that were handed down to us. I gotcha, kind yeah. of the, the budget and deadline issues that we had kind of meant that I was allowed to <laughs> to add my own input into things. And there were points where we didn't actually have a design. There was just a description in the script, but there was no time for the art department to produce anything for me to work from. So I literally just went from the script and went, okay, I'll interpret this in my own way. So in a way, I kind of, I was benefited by the situation that we had, by the restrictions that we had, because perversely it gave me a bit more freedom to add my That's own slant things. Yeah, that's really interesting. Um, so I'm a, a video producer by trade, mm -hmm. and I, I mean, it's a lot of fun when you get on a project that has a full budget, but mm -hmm. I really enjoy when I'm working with a smaller budget and I have to figure out, all right, how are we going to do this with less crew? How are we going to pull this off? How are we going to steal a location? All that stuff. Yeah. And, you know, like, can I light this with only the the three or four lights I've got in my kit versus rentals? Um, and it's, it's, it is really satisfying when you pull it off and you're like, wow, that looks like a bigger budget than it was. Yeah, um, I, I, it, I agree. It, it's awesome. it's that um, oh, I can't think of a can't think of a phrase for it. Um, it's adversity gives you the opportunity to to just pull a bit of magic out of the hat. Whereas if you had all the budget and all the time in the world, you can kind of get a little bit lazy. But if you're constantly having to be inventive be problem solving all the time then i think yeah your creative juices can flow uh, a little bit more freely if that makes sense yeah of course i, th I think it's really great anytime you can add limitations to yourself because that's what um like improv comedy is all about is the comedy doesn't come from great writing because improv is never great writing no. but it comes from watching actors struggle with different sets of rules and have to make it work you know yeah <laughs> No, I, I, is, I agree. I think it's. I think that adversity does give you. Uh, you know, you've got to think of it up in the in the moment, and you've got to problem solve in the moment. You don't have a massive department and a massive budget and and all the facilities you could ever want behind you. You have to be creative. Yeah. Well, um, congratulations on <laughs> Doctor Who because I know that those early seasons paved the way for uh it, it's been continuing ever since it just keeps going yeah, uh it does. and and you know that's no small feat i uh, yeah i i whether i would want to work on it now i suspect probably not but i it was it felt like a real privilege to be able to work on it when it first came back because i'm that's great i'm you know, I was born in the 60s, so I grew up watching 60s and 70s British TV. And mm -hmm. Doctor Who Saturday Night was a mainstay of my viewing because I loved all yeah. the sci-fi and the monsters and all of this. <laughs> so, you know, I grew up on Doctor Who on on the the early episodes. So when I heard it was coming back and it was going to be produced in Cardiff where I was working. I thought, there's no way this is going to happen without me. <laughs> I, mean, I was literally that determined. It's like, right, fuck it. This is going to happen, and I'm going to be yeah. on it. So I just fortunately knew you know, other contacts, so I, I threw out a lot of inquiries, found out who was in charge of the art department, and sort of mm -hmm. just basically stormed in and went, give us a job. Awesome. <laughs> 
<laughs> so yeah, <laughs> that's I, one way to do it. <laughs> well, it was it was great because, as I say, going back to that whole, it's a, nobody really knew what they were doing, so we were all just winging it, uh-huh. and I kind of really got a buzz out of doing that. Um, oh. I wouldn't want to keep on doing it after what uh-huh. I got wearing, and I went, uh, yeah, of course, this is enough. But yeah, it was it was good. It, it felt like a privilege, and it felt like my ten-year-old childhood self would be bouncing up and down like he was on ten shots of caffeine with excitement. At the <laughs> idea that his old self would be actually working on it. Yeah, so true. Awesome. Did you have a favorite episode of Doctor Who, whether it's the seasons you worked on or not? Yeah, I think the one the one I enjoyed working on the most was a two-parter christopher eccleston was um the empty child and the doctor dances that two-part oh, yeah. world war ii uh-huh. uh, there was just something about working on that we had some nice props to make uh it was a nice setting and i think it was a good story so i, th- I think out of all of them that's probably the story that i'm most proud to have worked on awesome yeah i remember those episodes they they were beautiful yeah they they had classic creepy doctor who because <laughs> doctor who was when it was at its best it was creepy there's the whole thing oh, like wow. you watch it from behind the sofa yeah that's that's the old adage, <laughs> adage of watching doctor who back uh-huh. in the 60s and 70s and that had to me had some of that element of it's genuinely creepy so yeah i thought it was a good one. Oh wow awesome you're also a puppet and creature maker but you're Puppets are not something you'd ever see on Sesame Street. They kind of have that same creepy vibe. Um, <laughs> how'd you get into making puppets? And and how would you describe your like art style when you're building puppets? Uh, um, the style uh, style really depends on on what the the commission or the the brief was. But I, I think the style I enjoy working most in is the one that was really inspired by things like The Dark Crystal and Labyrinth, mm-hmm. which was Brian, yeah. Brian Froud's uh, designs, which I think just translated so beautifully to puppetry. I'm mean, mm-hmm. very, you know, very sword and sorcery, fantasy, elves and fairies and goblins uh, yeah. thing. But th- those are the ones that I've enjoyed making the most. Um, and I've, I've made, I mean probably made about 70 80 puppets over the years for various productions Um, but most of them tend to be sort of fantasy-esque a few animals Uh shoved in there um so yeah i I haven't actually made puppets for quite a while although i did make a post-apocalyptic ventriloquist doll uh last year just just because lockdown was getting boring and i didn't have any work on i thought right okay fuck it i'm gonna make this so i did yeah that's great so it's just hanging by a string in the corner of my workshop at the moment (laughs) i don't know what to do with it (laughs) oh man uh do you have i i don't think i've seen this is it on your website uh no actually i don't i don't think it's on my website i don't think i've even taken any proper photographs of it uh i posted a, a video of it some time ago on facebook and instagram Okay. Uh, no, I've, uh, that's very remiss of me. I should take some photographs and maybe <laughs> do an official little video of it. It's just a creepy doll made into yeah. a ventriloquist doll. And well, that'd be great. I'd love to see it. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so now when you're doing your puppets, and you guys should all go to markcordry.com. Uh, I'll link it below in the uh, episode notes. But these puppets are not 
like sock puppets. They're very elaborate. When you're building them, you've got to be thinking about like the mechanics of actually using them. Mm-hmm. Um, how much more goes into a puppet than like a typical prop? Well, I mean, like you say, you've, you've got to figure out how it's going to be puppeteered. <clears throat> so, I mean, generally, they will mostly be hand puppeteered in the same way you think uh-huh. of Kermit, that you've yeah. got your, your hand in the, in the head operating the mouth and the, the, the gross head movements. But things like you, you're probably thinking mostly about the goblin pirate that's on the front page of my website. Mm-hmm. It's kind of my my sort of online avatar these days. Yeah, but he's got <laughs> uh, he's got blink mechanism and frown and the hand movements, which are all cable controlled. And you have to think right at the start from the design, like, okay, where am I going to put the wrinkles in? What will assist the movement on this? Mm. How wide does the mouth have to be that I'm not really pulling against the foam or whatever materials I'm making it out of? So that there's wow. a lot you have to think right back to the beginning how you're going to solve the problems five, six, ten steps down the line. So mm-hmm. you have to plan ahead for a puppet far more than I think an average prop. You just yeah, go, oh, this kind of makes itself really. But yeah, when, whenever there's mechanisms involved and when there's puppeteering involved, then there's a lot of considerations. Weight is, is a major issue. And mm-hmm. Every ounce counts in when you're making a puppet that you, especially if it's one that you're operating from below in, in classic uh, um, I'm actually doing the hand movements here, although that's <laughs> bugger all use on a podcast. But when when you're working from below, as you would be with Miss Piggy or Kermit or your classic uh-huh. uh, Muppet, every single ounce is on your arm and on your hand. So right. you have to think, okay, I'm going to try and cut the weight down on every single aspect of this this build. So, yeah, they're, they're an interesting challenge, and you don't always get it right. I mean, if you're stuck beneath <laughs> the table staring at a monitor for three hours, you feel every every pound on your, your arm is like, oh, God, this really, really hurts. <laughs> so puppeteers really work for their money. Yeah, no kidding. Uh, I, I, anytime you're working over your head uh, – it can get draining really fast. So oh, yeah. I, I hadn't really thought about the weight issue with some of these puppets. Well, yeah. That's pretty wild. It's not just dolly waggling. <laughs> I, I love when you bring out uh, these incredibly British sayings. I have no idea what a dolly wagging is. Well, do- dolly waggling was the disparaging uh, description of puppeteering. Mm. Like that most of the puppeteers would, would call it, oh, I'm just dolly waggling. So waggling okay. a dolly around. Um, so yeah, it's, it's self-depreciation. Got it. Got it. (laughs) Okay. And then, um, so not only, uh, hand puppets, but you also make full body puppets, uh, more or less creature costumes. Mm -hmm. Uh, and a lot of them you've made for LARPing and LARPers, um, which is so much like these costumes are so far above and beyond what I typically expect for a LARP. I, well, thank you. I mean, it's, I think the... I think it was the creature costumes, the potential of the creature costumes that really got me into LARP initially. And then I discovered all the the rest of what it's capable of doing uh, Mm -hmm. as as a form of entertainment. But yeah, right from the start, I wanted 
to try and make LARP feel like you were on a movie set or in a you know reasonably budget TV, even though most of them ended up like Doctor Who style budget monsters. Uh-huh. But yeah, I, there's something quite magical about presenting a full body monster costume to unsuspecting players for the first time and they go <laughs> i was just about to swear really badly then so i won't but that they're seeing their reaction from a, a surprising full body monster costume is is really quite satisfying the, the last one i did yeah was uh, kind of inspired by Ray Harryhausen, um, uh-huh. um, uh, Jason and the Argonauts, Talos. Uh, it was meant to be a four-armed bronze statue, animated statue, seven foot tall. And I managed oh, wow. to get four arms working on a costume. It's just a guy inside uh, uh-huh. a, um, uh, an EVA foam and latex costume. Uh-huh. But seeing that within the game environment rather than just somebody with a cheap shop bought mask on their head uh-huh. for me it's it's kind of it's like being able to work on a low budget film but you don't have to worry about somebody else's commission because you're doing it for yourself <laughs> you're writing right. the script you're putting in the monsters and the props and all of that uh-huh. Um, yeah, I, I I do enjoy LARP. I mean, it's it's daft, but when it, <laughs> when it works really well, it's a remarkably effective storytelling and entertainment. Yeah, yeah, it, it it's really interesting because I've I've not been involved in LARPing. Of course, I've had a lifetime of like theater and improv, and um, of course, at Wasteland, you kind of go in and out of character, mm-hmm. but. But yeah, I'm excited to uh, go to my first LARP. I, I know that we do a few here, like Nuclanta, um, down in Georgia. Um, so I'm hoping to make my way there at some point. But yeah, oh, ex- so far, ex- I haven't gotten into it. Well, I mean, I've, it's obviously after last year. I, we don't know when there's going to be any more LARPs in this country. And, mm-hmm. you know, I'm knocking on a bit now. So I don't know <laughs> how many more LARPs I've got left in me or when <laughs> there's ever going to be any more. So I, I don't know. It'd be nice to do just at least one more. <laughs> oh, Mark Cordry's last stand. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I've oh, got man, a few get... characters to kill off on various games, so yeah, might as well finish them off. Now I can see you like leading a band of warriors, like Braveheart style, into your last LARP. <laughs> yeah, I'd like to go down in the blaze of glory. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. Um, Okay, so with some of these creatures, I, I know uh, on your website I've seen uh, like a full-size alien, a living corpse that looks straight out of Resident Evil, hmm. um, and and the, I think the most impressive, uh, an incredibly elaborate Cthulhu. All right. Um, how long do these take you? Um, how long did Cthulhu take me? I think Cthulhu took about six weeks. Um, I mean, wow. I only charged for like three weeks work, but this, this is, <laughs> this is the problem when you get into building something, you go, no, nah, actually I could make it look like this. Oh, if yeah. I put another few days into that, that'll look even better. And you, uh-huh. it, pride, pride takes away the, your business sense and you just go, uh, sod it. I just want to finish this off to make it look as best as possible. Uh-huh. So yeah, Cthulhu was, was a fun one to make. 
Um, and the weirdest thing about the Cthulhu one was uh, when it turned up on my Facebook feed and the Stan <laughs> Winston School of what a, the Stan Winston School. Uh, every year they do a Halloween competition where people submit uh-huh. their Halloween costumes, and they'd taken a picture, my picture of Cthulhu. Uh, as their poster boy for that year's competition. That credited oh, wow. me and everything, and that was great. It's like, oh, wow, okay, thank you very much. <laughs> Stan Winston's school choosing my Cthulhu. He's just a big yeah. rubber monster, and, you know, it's it's hardly film-quality stuff, but it's perfectly okay for LARP. Um, well, it sure, it sure photographs well. It looks like mm. it could be practically real. Well, you know, that's where photographers come in because no matter how good a costume you make, whatever genre you're working in, you know, you can make something that looks really good, but you get a proper photographer to take really good photographs and everything just looks so much better. So never underestimate the power of a good photographer. Yeah, that's a really good point. <laughs> um, yeah, those are those are wild. Now, are, are are these all commissions, or do you have like a back room with all these creatures in in like standing coffins oh, and, God, and just waiting for, to be used? No, most of them are commissions. <clears throat> Virtu- virtually all the stuff that I produce is done to commission. It's uh-huh. very rare that I will get the luxury of making something just because I want to make it. Because yeah, this is this is my full time job, so I you mm-hmm. know I have to put aside the personal stuff in favor of the stuff that's actually going to pay me money. So, right. Yeah. I mean, m- most of the costumes, the creature costumes, are commissioned. the The only one that wasn't really was the the bronze titan that I was talking about. That was done for a lap that I was running, and mm-hmm. it was co funded by a much larger lap system uh, in the uk so they they put in a chunk of money into its build and then after we'd used it on the event that that i was involved in running they got to keep it so that that kind of helped that helped lessen the 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 hurt of spending however many weeks making it for for free which is generally what you do when you're making stuff for yourself gotcha right Oh, interesting. Yeah, it's 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 wild when you um, consider like you know a lot of these projects wouldn't have happened if someone hadn't come to you and said you know I have this idea. Do you think you can do it? Mm. So th- that's pretty fascinating, and it, it can definitely help you exercise your artistic style when someone says, "Yeah, I, I want this Cthulhu," or <laughs> or, or I, I want <laughs> you know well, these weird characters with Cthulhu. I almost bullied the the system into letting me build Cthulhu for them. Uh, it's it's uh, <laughs> a system based in the Netherlands uh, uh-huh. called Vortex Adventures. And they'd found a couple of my previous monsters online and put out a call on Facebook saying, hey, does anybody know somebody who makes costumes like this? And the two photographs oh, they'd chosen were two of the costumes that I'd made. So uh-huh. somebody flagged me. I got in contact with them, said, yeah, they're both mine. What do you want? <laughs> and I ended up making, I don't know, probably about eight, nine costumes o- over a period of years for them. But, oh, wow. That's great. But the Cthulhu one was that they basically said, what do you really want to make? I said, I'd love to make Cthulhu. I went, <laughs> yeah, okay. I'm sure we can use them. So, so I did. That's fantastic. Awesome. Oh man. Okay. So, um, 
I just want to touch one more base into your film career. In 2018, you got to run the whole art department for the release of uh, the UK's Black Flowers, which was retitled uh, Out of the Country as Atomic Apocalypse. Mm. Can you tell me about that project, how you got involved? Well, I, I didn't run the whole art department. I was lit. I was uh, art director for the two-day shoot which took place in the uk so they were doing most of it was filmed in the states got it and they had uh they had the the main actor she came over and i don't know quite what the setup was but yes they did two days worth of filming in some woodland and some old buildings in the UK, and I had worked previously briefly for the director, Martin Gooch, mm-hmm. uh, who contacted me and said, you know, I've seen you do post-apocalyptic stuff. Uh, are you interested in coming and sort of bringing some of your costumes along and a few people to just do a bit of artwork on two days shoot? So I did, and it was great. It, it was, yeah, it was fun. It was a lot of running around in damp English woods in the middle uh-huh. of winter, um, <laughs> tending to be in the apocalypse again. <laughs> gotcha. Which which scene was that? Because I, I just watched the movie this week. I still haven't seen it yet. It, oh no, kidding! It's not, no, it's not being released over here yet. So oh, wow. uh, so no, I haven't seen it. It's it's the the scenes where the characters been chased through the woods at night by the raiders the scum raiders i think they're called. oh yep uh-huh. um and there's also um an interior uh sort of stronghold where some survivors are holed up and then the scum raiders uh burst in through the door and mayhem ensues but i, <laughs> I was one of the scum raiders i got a few other friends from larp uh, who had done some post-apocalyptic LARP as well, and they had nice. some of their own costumes, some costumes that I'd made for them, some spare bits that I had. So we sort of cobbled together about five or six raiders enough for uh, for that shoot. Yeah, it was mostly the woods at night. Uh huh. Yeah, that that was great. It was a it was a a lot of fun. The the movie it goes to a lot of places. Um, and there's a lot of really cool characters and, um, it's kind of like a, it kind of plays out like a fallout game because you go to this tribe and they've got this going on there. There's this, uh, this cult of, um, of survivors trying to bring a, a ladder to the top of a mountain so they can get closer to the God just for the heck of it because they're bored. <laughs> <laughs> and then there's another camp where, um, they, they have a lot of supplies, but, they've decided that they're just going to party until the supplies run out because uh, again, they're bored. <laughs> right, okay. So well, it was really fun kind of going to these different, you know, places and everyone's deciding to run out the apocalypse in a different way. Oh, I, I'm, I look forward to seeing it because I only ever saw the, the segment of script that I was working on. So I don't know what the rest of the story is. Um, but the, the trailer I've seen looks really good. Uh, the, the computer, uh, graphics work on it sort of you know the background enhancement and the ruined cities going yeah that looks yeah. really really good so i say as soon as it's released in the uk it's definitely on my on my watch list but it was fun awesome. it was it was good it was a nice again it's that it was like the early days of doctor who that there wasn't a massive budget there wasn't a massive mm-hmm. production team you had 
to be inventive. You had to make do with the supplies and the environments that you had and make the most of them. So, I, yeah, I enjoy working like that. Yeah, that's great. And it's it's amazing what you can do in the digital era where, you know, map painting becomes that much easier because you can just drop backgrounds in digitally and uh, cameras and audio equipment has gotten cheaper. So that stuff has made it more accessible. Mm. Uh, and so now you're just down to, you know, what do your locations cost and what do your people cost? It's it's pretty wild. Yeah, I, I think that the whole, the whole digital filming and camera work it's made it so much more accessible when when i was a kid we we had my father had a super 8 cine camera yeah mm-hmm. so that's your your you know 8 millimeter film strip with a with a sound strip down the side of it uh-huh. and he would make films and they would be edited but you, you would get like a three minute reel of film which you would then have to send off to the processors <laughs> you, you know you didn't know whether you'd got the scenes that you wanted until you got it back and edited it together now everything is i mean, digital footage is, is essentially free yeah because if if, if it doesn't work record over it do it again Right, and there's no the only editing costs are really the programs that you're using in your own time. It's not mm-hmm. like you're having to farm stuff out to Kodak or whatever to be you know to be processed. <laughs> so right. I, I think that whole that whole revolution of of making it so accessible to just people at home and anybody who wants to give it a try can, and that's fantastic. Yeah, I agree. Well, survivors, we're going to get into Mark's post-apocalypse costuming, as well as his trip across the pond to Wasteland Weekend, right after these messages from the Wasteland community. Do you want to show off the size of your gun? Do you need a compensator to extend the size of your barrel because your gun is too small? Well, come on down to the Gunrunners, where we have the largest guns in the waste. Everything from RPG Zookas to Mega Flessad Rockets. Come check us out inside the Valkyries of the Second Sun camp. This is Grim Grinner, broadcasting on all channels. Welcome to The Waste is available to listen on Spotify, Anchor FM, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Find out more at linktree.com slash welcome to the wastes. See you in the wastes. All right, survivors, we're back with Mark Cordery from the UK, and uh, we just went over a lot of his prop making and filmmaking career. Uh, but now we're going to get into, he's got a whole line of post-apocalypse costume pieces. And I mean, these are like top of the line post-apocalypse costume pieces. The brand is called Salvage. It's right on markcordry.com. Um, so Mark, what drew you into post-apocalypse costuming? Um, LARP was uh, mm. my first excuse to make a costume. Um, there were some friends who had run um, a small LARP in the UK, uh, very much inspired by Fallout. Um, awesome. So it's set in the same world, and it looked like fun. And uh-huh. they were running a second one at uh, a disused military uh, military base in the UK. Mm-hmm. I thought, yeah, the venue looks quite good. Uh, a few of my friends were going there. So I thought, oh, I better make a costume then. <laughs> so I didn't really know what I was doing. I just threw something together. But I really enjoyed mm-hmm. the process. And I really enjoyed 
I really enjoyed the way that it worked in a similar way to how I was making stuff for Doctor Who years previous, that it was a matter of finding random pieces and repurposing them into something new. And I thought, well, that kind of really fits in with the whole post-apocalyptic thing that, you you know, you're salvaging the wasteland for bits that you can repurpose. Oh, yeah. So I, I... immediately it kind of went yeah actually i really enjoy this style of work and i enjoy this genre because i dabbled a bit in uh, steampunk uh, a couple of years previous and never really i, I never really <laughs> it. it didn't really do uh-huh. much for me it's like yeah it's all right but it's not really inspiring me but as soon as i started doing the post-apocalyptic stuff i went oh yeah actually this is really good that I, I like this suits the way i work so that was my first costume it is interesting how like different genres will just attract us right off the bat like that. Like, you know, I, I fell in love with the post-apocalypse stuff right away, too, because um, first off, the world is kind of open ended. And then when you look at our inspiration, um, Fallout, Mad Max, uh, Waterworld, it's really interesting because uh, tribalism is such a big thing in all these stories and each of the tribes take on their own aesthetic. So you can kind of work almost anything into a post-apocalypse costume. Yeah, I, I agree. That there are so many different approaches to making to making something which will fit in a post-apocalyptic genre. Um, I mean, you, you've got your classic Mad Max. You know, set a lot of standards, uh-huh. um, especially in the use of like tires to make armor. Although, actually, it wasn't really Mad Max that that cemented that. It was Salute of the Jugger, right? Um, that. I realized did the majority of the work of establishing tires as, Hey, this makes good armor. Right. Um, but there, yeah, I mean, there, there are so many different ways to approach it. I mean, one of, one of my favorite recent approaches has been for the game horizon zero dawn mm-hmm. is post-apocalyptic, but just approaches the design work in a completely different way. And it was like, yeah, this, this is really gorgeous, but still obviously post-apocalyptic but as you say also very tribal and right i like that tribal element and there's definitely a lot you can play with there um so yeah it, it's a it's a great genre and can be approached from loads and loads of different directions yeah and it, it almost looks like horizon um has like a, almost a prehistoric element to it but also mechanical it's it's kind of interesting it it's a really interesting fusion i mean a lot of the 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 robots in it are you know there's obviously a, some inspired by dinosaurs some inspired by you know real world creatures yeah um, and then the clothing and a lot of the weapons and elements are made up of components from mm-hmm. those felled creatures so that there's a real that design sort of works through from your opponents right through to the costuming on all of the tribes and all of the characters and the character you play mm-hmm. it all has the same aesthetic. So it all really ties in very nicely as a world, as a worldview. So, I mean, I've, yeah. I collect a lot of, a lot of like the art of books, like the art of fallout four and the art oh, of cool. Mad Max and the art of horizon zero dawn uh-huh. because they're great reference. And I think computer games are as, as valid 
a source of reference these days as any as any film or TV series. I think there's some really great concepts and really great artists working on some really interesting productions. Yeah, and and video games today have you know even more elaborate stories than film because you you know a, a video game will have ten or twelve or twenty hours of playtime and. You think of like The Last of Us, Last of Us Two. Mm-hmm. Um, they they tell these long stories with incredible character development and so much um, just embedded within that. Yeah, I mean, you say the The Last of Us uh, was a fantastic game, and I think I think really well told as well. Uh, genuine emotional punch, to right? It. And and great voice acting, uh, a great storyline, great script. Uh-huh. So yeah, I mean, The Last of Us is is definitely something which impressed me. And uh, oddly enough, today has been the casting's been released for Ellie and Joel for the for the HBO series which they've got planned. So Pedro, that's right, I just saw that. Yeah, Pedro Pascal, uh, the Mandalorian, he's playing mm. Joel, which perfect. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure. Yeah, I'm I'm sure he'll be great. I trust the casting. Yeah, I think they'll probably yeah. do a great job on it. But I look forward awesome. to seeing that. I look forward to seeing how that world is recreated uh, on screen, on you know, in reality, as much as you know, CGI is involved, as opposed to the as opposed to the computer game. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see what what technology they're going to use. Are they going to go practical and kind of set it on set and on stages, or are they going to do more like The Mandalorian? Uh, with which Pascal was also in, where they're using not green screen, but that um, uh, what is it? The Unreal Engine with oh, the yeah. backdrop, the LED screens. Yes. Uh, what, what is that called? It's not the Void. Um, I forget what it's called. Yeah, it's something like that, though, isn't it? <laughs> the sp- space or something. Yes. Um, I don't know. I I would imagine they will use a mixture of you know real world locations dressed and. CGI to just expand those locations. It's it works the best that way. I think is is when you've got a real location which is then enhanced by CGI rather than relying on them right. moving through a a green void and <laughs> all around them. Yeah, and and I'm sure uh, you know I haven't gotten to get a real take from actors on this, but I'd imagine uh, being on a real set definitely helps them to get into character better. Oh, I can imagine. Yeah, I, I, <laughs> I think there was probably quite a soul-destroying period in Hollywood where CGI was massively overused, right? And actors were just basically staring at green walls and silver balls stuck on the end of sticks, going, "Oh my god, I yeah. could be doing Shakespeare." <laughs> <laughs> I know it. Yeah, and and I love the Marvel superhero movies. Um, but you can always tell that they're not a hundred percent there because they're doing a lot of work on green screens. Mm. Yeah. I, mean, I think it's, uh, I think the first Iron Man, a lot of his suit was a practical suit. And mm-hmm. then later in subsequent films and then the, the Avengers films, apparently a lot of it was just replaced digitally. So he was yeah. walking around in you know, your standard blue suit with all the dots on it. Right. And I think that's a shame. I mean, I can yeah. see why, because it's probably more comfortable for, for the actor. <laughs> but I, I mean, the original Iron Man suit, not the very original one, but the, you know, the red, red and gold classic one uh-huh. was a, 
a fantastic piece of engineering yeah. to get a physical costume to move and work like that. I think it is, you know, a real tribute to to practical effects and costume making. And then to have it done as CGI, yeah, you probably can't tell the difference most of the time. Uh-huh. But, but really, oh, I like I like things practical. <laughs> Yeah. And and speaking of which, I want to get back to your costumes, because when I look at a Mark Corgery costume, uh, especially the, the salvage wear, um, they are so elaborate. They almost seem to tell their own story. You can really get a lot of uh, background on a character, even even before they're on somebody. So how do you go about designing your post-apocalypse costumes and getting so much um, story embedded in them? Oh, uh, well, thanks for the compliment. Um, yeah, I, I, I think a costume does need to tell a story. I mean, especially when you are dealing with something which, in theory, has a lot of history behind it, because you are you are basically saying that you are wearing something which has been no doubt repurposed from something else, uh-huh. was not built for you from scratch but mm-hmm. you, you've taken these elements you've again salvaged these things from elsewhere in the wasteland repurposed them um created something new from them but i think you need I, th- I think a successful costume has that story behind it that you can you can almost see where things have come from that simple things like stencils on on elements which uh-huh. are even fragments of stencils kind of tell a story that this has that element or that section of the costume has been taken from something else it had a different Uh purpose years ago but you've taken it you found it you've rebuilt it remade it and using it for something different and and that story that story i think is is really key to giving the whole costume a character to giving the person who's wearing it a character so that as they're walking around in that costume, you can kind of start telling their story or reading their story in the costume mm-hmm. without actually having to talk to them first and for them to go, well, actually I'm, i my backstory is this, <laughs> I, I'm, you know, whatever. It's nice if the story can make, if the costume can make its own introduction to you visually before uh-huh. you ever actually have to talk to the person. So yeah, oh, I think story and detail sort of repairs you know things get damaged things get repaired and the more Uh damage and repair you get the more story you're adding to to a piece of costume it's all about creating a false sense of history Mm -hmm. and especially in the post-apocalypse because everything that you're using is from history that there's virtually no you know, in most in most scenarios, there's virtually no means of producing new things, and uh-huh. all those elements of production have been destroyed, or you know have fallen into ruin. So you all you're left with is salvaging pre-existing items from a wasteland and reusing them. So everything has got a history, and I think if you can put that into into your repairs, into your detailing, into your aging then that's a, that's a very important element of creating a successful costume, I think. 
Yeah, that's great. And I remember um, in my first Wasteland weekend, which was 2011, I had showed up with a costume that um, was kind of cobbled together. It was actually something I made for a web series before, and I was kind of reusing it. Um, But, you know, I had like, you know, the the T-shirt that was underneath had just random slash marks in it. Mm -hmm. Um, And I I got approached. I was actually interviewing um, one of the kind of old timer. He was with the... um, he was with the Jugger group. I, I don't remember his name. I'm sure I could look it up. But he was like a, you know, um, he would do like Western reenactments. He was involved in, um, um, what am I trying to say, like Ren Fair, that kind of thing. So he he had a lifetime of costuming. And his advice was that, yeah, like the the damage is good, but, but you know, people in a post-apocalypse would be experts at fixing their own stuff mm. to be, to, to, kind of concentrate more on the repairs, be more deliberate with the distressing. Um, could you, I know you kind of mentioned a little bit before, but could you build on that and tell me what advice you would give to post-apocalypse cosplayers as they're making their first costumes? Um, okay. Well, I mean, yes, repairs, I think, as I said, they're, they're very much a part of the story of a costume and walking around in something which has literally fallen to bits and hanging off you <laughs> in terms of practicality of surviving is not necessarily realistic. Uh-huh. Uh, so yes, repairs would be ongoing. They would also be not, not everything would be aged to the same extent because mm. you would find you had been wearing something for like 10 years, gone uh-huh. through all sorts of environments and shit. And then you might find something which had just been tucked away in a warehouse and go, oh, that will repair that mm-hmm. element which has fallen apart. So not everything has to be the same level of distressed. Um, although it's tempting to distress everything down to the same level because then it looks kind of nice together right Um, you you don't want i mean obviously you don't want sort of a bright clean piece of fabric stuck on you know a tattered old pair of trousers or or a vest or whatever Mm -hmm. but yeah varying the levels of of aging can help to yeah that's more recent repair that's a, a much more pre-existing repair and layering those repairs. It doesn't, you don't just have to have one layer of repair on various uh-huh. parts of the, the costume. You know, you can have a repair on top of a repair on top of a repair. So you're building up that texture. Although as I found out myself, um, going to the Mojave for the first time, uh-huh. kind of don't want to add too many layers <laughs> before you go, Jesus, man, this is hot out here. As, as a Brit, we're like really not used to those Mojave desert temperatures. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, layering repairs upon repairs, I think is, you know, again, that gives you the depth. I, 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 I don't know. It's It kind of gets to a point where when you see it, you know that it works or doesn't mm-hmm. work. And it's difficult it's difficult for me at this point just to go, well, this is actually absolutely the way you should approach it. Um, yeah. I've seen so many different approaches, so many different techniques, and they all, there are so many right ways of doing it, but I don't think there is a single right way of doing it. Gotcha. Yeah, that makes sense, huh? Um, now, you mentioned going to Wasteland, and I believe the first time you went was in 2018. Is that right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
Yeah. And your wife came as well, right? She, or did she not come till 2019? No, she came. Uh, I mean, uh, all credit. I, I love my wife and she was amazing because <laughs> Wasteland, the first visit to Wasteland literally came from a conversation where I was, you know, I was looking at a video of it and just online. Uh-huh. Going, oh, that just looks awesome. God, I'd mm. love to go there one day. And she said, well, why don't we? I went, what seriously? <laughs> it's, 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 it's gonna cost a fortune to get there. So, well, mm-hmm. let's make a holiday out of it. So I went, fuck yeah! Oh, so, my. so literally, it was my wife going, yeah, okay, let's go. Uh, which I, I kind of hadn't expected because, but she had been to uh, like Old Town in Poland, which is another oh, great smaller post-apocalyptic festival. Um, but yeah, the the chance, I guess, of making it into a big american road tour road trip uh uh-huh. wrapped around it was more enticing i guess than just hey darling we're gonna hop on a plane and fly <laughs> you know fly over five thousand miles across the atlantic and uh spend five days pretending we're in the apocalypse when actually do things <laughs> like go to san francisco and uh las vegas and you know explore a bit oh that's of, great of the amazing country uh, mm-hmm. I just fell in love with with uh, California, uh, especially. So awesome. yeah, um, it was all thanks to my wife that we we went. But wow, the, and we were there for two days. <laughs> I went, can we come again next year? I said, yeah, okay. <laughs> <laughs> it gets you like that, yeah, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. And you did a couple um, distressing workshops. Um, one of them was uh, like a costuming tutorial, mm-hmm. um, which is the one specifically I remember you t- kind of taking a break and going, wow, I can't talk very long here in the desert. <laughs> oh, God, yeah. My, my, I was just, I could feel myself shriveling up like a like a sultana, just, just like the moisture getting sucked out of you. <laughs> so that, that was when they uh, I'd been put in front of the main stage in the direct sunlight. I went, whoa, no, this this is too much for me. Uh-huh. Uh, I'm not used to it. I mean, you know, we, we live in Britain and it's, we uh-huh. do not get those sort of temperatures out there. So, yeah, I, I kind of shriveled on the first year. but uh, Oh, you, all you, you carried it very well. Oh, thank you very, thank you very much. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and that was that was definitely a rough spot because you know even I was there with a camera, um, but the audience, I mean, they were having a hard time too, and they didn't have to present. So mm-hmm. um, I'm glad that they moved you to the command center, which has at least some shade uh, for when you did the the doll making workshop, which is pretty interesting. Um, it's like these post apocalyptic dolls, and it was like a lot of baby dolls. Um, what? Where did that come from? <laughs> Honestly, uh, the whole creepy doll thing. I, I don't know. It's it kind of took on a life of its own after a while, but the uh-huh. whole thing started with one doll, which I was. I, I, do you know what a car boot sale is? I don't, I don't, yeah, yeah. Well, I was at a car boot sale quite a few years ago, and there was somebody selling an ugly doll. That's an mm-hmm. ugly doll, two pound. Um, I looked at it and went, oh, probably, yeah, I could do something with that. So I'll give you a quid for it. So said, okay, please take it. So uh-huh. I took it and I, made, I ended up making a mask out of it because it was quite an ugly doll. And I thought, that's uh-huh. quite good fun. And then somebody went, oh, I'll have that. 
And then somebody else saw that picture and went, oh, I'd like one like that as well, please. So I ended up making two and then four and then eight. And then then just suddenly I was making loads of creepy doll stuff and figuring out different ways of using dolls. Mm-hmm. And then the Barbie dolls, I got hold of a load of those. Thought oh, I can do something with those. And um, I mean, I've lost count of how many dolls I've made or <laughs> how many childhood memories I've mutilated <laughs> at this point. Um, but the, the workshops just seem to be really popular and they're fun to do. Um, and I'd, I'd run a couple, oh, excuse me, I'd run a couple in Poland at Old mm-hmm. Town and those were popular. And then when Jared... Uh, said, you know, do, do you want to run some stuff out at Wasteland? Uh, so, well, uh-huh. yeah, I'd, you know, I'd do a couple of creepy doll workshops, and those got booked out like within minutes, apparently, uh, with a waiting mm-hmm. list on them. So they were popular and they were fun and they were sort of undercover, which was also good. Yeah, um, and I, yeah, I don't know. I, I never planned to be associated with mutilating dolls, <laughs> and it's, I'm not quite sure how comfortable I am with it. But I guess you take what you're given. So, yeah. 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 And uh, I just want to clarify a couple of things you said there. Jared is uh, one of the heads of Wasteland Weekend. Um, He's one of the co-owners. And uh, yeah, so he's kind of the guy to go through for all these scheduling things. And then um, these dolls, uh, I'm going to try to just describe them the way I see them. Uh, Everyone in these workshops brings their own doll. And then basically you kind of pop them apart in places you you literally burn the plastic um you're painting on them you're throwing uh some new clothing on them you're you're uh some people were like sticking wires through them to kind of like mutilate them a little bit more is is it just basically like completely wreck these things as much as possible well okay the the process that i i kind of settled on for doing the workshops was that everybody bought two dolls so uh-huh. one to work on and one to chuck into the body pile uh, oh cool yeah, for everybody to pick from and uh-huh. then at the start of the workshop basically I, I generally say okay rip out an eye and take at least one limb off and then <laughs> chuck those around swap them pick things from you know pick bits from the 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 pile in the middle and uh-huh. just start putting them you know adding new limbs because i i guess the 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 process the thought process behind it is that these are toys and dolls which have been made up from random fragments that have been right whether things found in you know a an old house which has been burnt down. You've got a, you know, oh, yeah. partly dismembered burnt doll that you found in the rubble, and then maybe it's got some limbs missing and an eye missing. Uh-huh. You, later on, you find a, a completely different doll, and that becomes something, something else. And you just yeah. p- put these random bits together. So I, I, I can't remember the phrase I used as. Um, strange toys for wasteland children that that these are sort of hideous things that only a child of the apocalypse could fall in love with Uh Um, and i i I kind of like there's an element of sadness about them all Uh that, that they're quite poignant they can be quite poignant little 
toys that it's like, oh God, the world is so awful that <laughs> this hideous lump of burnt plastic can actually give a child some comfort. So yeah, that's great. Yeah. But generally it's mostly adults have them and go, Yeah, I love these, these are great. <laughs> yeah i don't i don't think they're a, a, a gift for most children <laughs> no i don't i don't think many uh many children have had them but um yeah uh, but people like um, um wastelanders like auntie virus uh uh-huh. she she's she already had her own creepy doll thing going on but uh uh-huh. but it's nice to meet like-minded people in wasteland weekend to go yeah let's mutilate some dolls (laughs) (laughs) yeah and um that kind of goes back to you were you were mentioning working with small smaller budgets and i think the post-apocalypse genre is perfect for it because you are literally like scavenging these dolls and these costume pieces wherever you can find them and i mean sometimes it's your own closet but um this stuff can come from like thrift stores and army navy stores and and um all sorts of places where you can just collect uh, junk. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. As I say, the, the process was v- was very close to how I was working on the first couple of seasons of Doctor Who. Is yeah. that you 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 start to gain an eye for shapes and form mm-hmm. and how those shapes and forms can fit together to create something new. So mm-hmm. I. Th- when I go to a car boot sale, and we have some quite big ones uh, around locally to me, that's when the apocalypse isn't actually happening and they're allowed to uh-huh. run. Um, but I, I will go to a car boot sale and there'll be you know, maybe a couple hundred stalls, tables laid out. And I, I will systematically walk down each row and scan every table uh-huh. as I'm walking looking for shapes, looking for interesting forms or pieces or details and go, ah, that would work. And I think I've kind of trained myself quite well to to be able to just quickly notice these things, notice shapes, notice interesting pieces that I think, yeah, okay, I might not have a purpose for that right now, but I know at some point it will become useful. So I'll put it in one of my many boxes of junk, which still litter my workshop. Uh-huh. Yeah, I was, go- I was about to ask, do you have like a junk room or a, or a garage that's full all yeah, the way to the top? That's basically my workshop, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I just have crates and crates, or like crates full of of plastic elements, crates full of bits of metal, crates full of just there are crates filled with all different things and because of the pandemic i haven't been able to get out to restock so my supplies are dwindling unfortunately uh-huh. and i'm definitely going to need to get out and you know find some more but fortunately i have so many crates filled with crap that i've survived so far. <laughs> well that's great and the dwindling supply is a good sign of uh productivity during quarantine <laughs> yeah i mean the, the last year started off pretty good i had a couple of full costumes pretty much full costume builds for wasteland weekend which unfortunately uh-huh. then got cancelled um and then the rest of last year kind of tailed off, and I ended up making lots of creepy dolls, but just nice. different styles. Uh, and this year has started off actually remarkably well, surprisingly well. Oh, that's uh, great! So I've I had I I can't say who it was for. Probably by the time this comes out, I will have been able to say who it was for. Uh-huh. But I've I've had a, a very interesting post-apocalyptic themed 
commission which involved three builds uh, which was quite fun that filled up january and now i've got some more inquiries coming through that's great february and march so yeah that's going to chew up more of my stock so i really yep. need to get out there and <laughs> find some more crap yeah <laughs> gotcha yeah hopefully uh the boot sales will be on and by the way for for uh, my fellow americans uh and elsewhere a boot sale is or a car boot sale is very akin to our flea markets here <laughs> yeah um all right so you mentioned old town festival in poland a couple times can you tell me about that festival i know it's a larp um it's i think it's probably the second biggest festival in the world um outside of wasteland weekend um tell me what it was like and, and tell me how it compares to um like a like a desert mad max festival um uh- Old Town was probably, well, it was definitely my first post-apocalyptic festival. I've been to three of them. Um, They are held on an old disused Soviet military airbase of what they have got. I mean, obviously, uh, Second World War, a lot of Soviet occupation in in, uh, Poland and after after the war. and there are a lot of these places apparently still kicking around. And Old Town is situated on um, this huge old military airbase. So all the all the old runways there, overgrown, cracked concrete, lots of crumbling buildings, yeah. service buildings that were part of the the airbase. And they have they've created a town. Uh, on one part of the airbase, and then everything outside that town is the wasteland. So you you mm-hmm. have a huge area to walk out and explore into, which is great. So it really does feel like you're heading into the wasteland. That's great. Um, as probably, I mean, compared to Wasteland Weekend, Old Town is quite small. I'm not sure how many people they've had, but less than a thousand. Uh, I think quite a bit less than a thousand people uh-huh. but it's a larp it's airsoft based so using airsoft bb guns for mm-hmm. ranged combat but that only happens outside the town the town boundaries uh, obviously for safety reasons uh-huh. uh, and within the town boundaries people will come in and build entire encampments so you know the people are on site for at least a couple of weeks prior to the event um, I guess in a very similar way to Wasteland Weekend, that you will get teams of people coming in, building right. encampments, building the town from the ground up again. Uh-huh. Uh, and it attracts people from all over the world. I mean, I've I've met uh, uh, s- people from Sweden, from Finland, from Australia, from America, from Russia, Germany. Uh, wow. There were only a couple of us. I think we were actually the only people from the UK the times I've been there. Uh-huh. And it's lovely. I mean, it's a really good atmosphere. Uh, everybody is, again, like Wasteland Weekend, really friendly, welcoming, uh-huh. um, and yeah, I, I I love it. It's a it's a good little festival. Uh, and in terms of how does it compare to Wasteland Weekend? I mean, obviously the budget is considerably less. Um, I mean, Wasteland Weekend feels like you're on a set of a multi-million dollar Hollywood movie. Uh, <laughs> Old Town is obviously done more on a shoestring budget, uh-huh. um, and it's it's very much more make do. But both of them have have a, a really good apocalyptic feel to them, although they are very different events. 
Yeah. And then, um, well, Wasteland, uh, Wasteland takes place in the Mojave Desert or right on the edge of the Mojave Desert. But Old Town is is going to have a very different feel. It's very green there. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah, it is. I'm going to say the... Um, it's very much overgrown uh, th- that way that nature reclaims disused yeah. sort of human constructions, mm-hmm. the concrete mm-hmm. and the buildings. Nature is very much regreening all of that. So it's it's a different feel of an apocalypse uh, yeah. in the way that Wasteland is, you know, your deserts and everything's parched and dry uh-huh. and desolate. Old Town is less desolate but equally apocalyptic just in a greener way that's great and it does <laughs> just the imagery coming out of that festival it looks like somewhere where you could actually survive whereas <laughs> the wasteland desert um if if it wasn't for the town uh, of california city that's only 15 minutes away uh you couldn't survive out there for more than a, a week <laughs> <laughs> It's pretty uh, wild. Yeah, it's it's good. I mean, I say they're they're both they're both their own different apocalypse. But that's the good thing about yeah. the, the genre is that there's so di- so many different apocalypses and so many different ways of approaching it, of imagining it, and it, it's open to a lot of creativity. And yeah, as I say, but I think both end up as basically a party at the end of the world. Right, which which is great. You know, I, I love I love that whole thing. Fuck it, the world's end. Yeah, let's just party. <laughs> right. Oh, totally. Uh, yeah, and and the party is it is an absolute blast. If you haven't been to any of these festivals uh, and you've been thinking about going, just go. The people are amazing. They're super inviting. Um, you don't need to show up with a tribe or with a camp or anything like that. I mean, you have to bring a camp. You need somewhere to stay. But um, you can just go and just uh, enjoy uh, the show <laughs> as well. Yeah. Cool. Um, okay. So let's see. In early 2020, when the pandemic started and this whole world was starting to get their first stay at home orders uh, and we were all running out of toilet paper. I'm not sure if you guys had that same problem there, but we sure did. It was kind of where this is going. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you, <laughs> you showed up in a meme. Mm-hmm. Can you describe it? Oh, uh, yeah. Uh, okay, so as you say, the, the everything's going to shit and toilet is <laughs> suddenly the the new gasoline. Um, yeah, I, it was kind of weird. I The first notification I got was somebody tagging me on a Facebook post uh-huh. saying, uh, Mark, is this you? Um, I <laughs> went, yeah, that's me. And somebody had, I, I eventually tracked down where the image had come from, but uh-huh. it's a photograph that I had composited together. It was me in my costume, but I uh-huh. I'd sort of photoshopped background of a sort of derelict wasteland behind me. Uh-huh. And it was just, it was on my Pinterest board. I tracked it down to. Mm-hmm. And somebody had gone, has obviously been looking for a post-apocalyptic image to make uh-huh. a meme out of and found that one and went, oh, that'll do. <laughs> so they cropped it, but it's still, weirdly, they'd still left this watermark across the middle of it, which had my website address on it. Oh, that's um, great. And, and put, I'm going to the store. Do you need anything on it? <laughs> and, and weirdly, it just, it just went viral. 
And I say I got the first message, first notification, then I got a couple more, then I got a couple more, and then I got some from elsewhere in the world. And uh, within a few days, I was just getting notification after notification (laughs) after notification. I think, fuck, this has gone a bit weird. And it just carried on like that. So, yes, I was, I'm the guy in the, I'm going to the store, do you need anything? (laughs) It's so funny. 2020 hadn't been strange enough. (laughs) Yeah. And um, I know that you have uh, taken advantage of this uh, new fame and turned the image into a t-shirt, right? Yeah, I I held off for, for months for that because it just felt like, in poor taste but as as the whole thing went on and everybody kind of got used to it i just went sod it I, I, why not <laughs> so i changed the wording slightly to the original meme was uh, do you want anything and i just changed it to do you, do you need anything uh-huh. um, and i rebuilt the entire image because it that was a small image 72 dpi by i don't know 20 by right. 30 but i wanted I had all the original elements of it, so I just did a high-resolution version of it and did it as a T-shirt, so it's available on <laughs> uh, on TeePublic and Redbubble. And it's my, my most popular-selling design out of all the ones <laughs> I've got. I thought, well, sod it, somebody's going to do this. Why not me? Right. Um, I mean, it's, it's you. So, <laughs> Weirdly enough, I did have – I had three – I'm not sure whether they're all the same person using different accounts, but I had three people contact me via different methods going, I can't believe you're using my design to try and make money. That that's really sucks. What? what? Dude, it, it's literally my photograph. Look, look on the original meme, you can see my website address on it. And somebody had like got really upset about me deciding to make a t-shirt <laughs> available Oh, how come you're using somebody else's design? Dude, have you, have you ever heard about copyright? Do you know how copyright works? Yeah, no kidding. <laughs> so and I've never heard anything from them since, but that, that yeah. just kind of just added another layer of weirdness to the whole thing. Right. So right. Yeah, if, if you want the T-shirt or, or greetings cards or whatever the fuck, it's on a load of different things on Public and Redbubble. Strange, yeah, very, very strange <laughs> period of last year. I love it. Well, it is, it is a fantastic design, and it is perfect for the pandemic. So, if you guys need a new T-shirt, definitely find Mark stuff on on those websites. It's it's great. Thank you. Yeah, I know. I have a, a salvage shirt. I've um I've worn it for a couple of the uh, YouTube shows. No, oh, cool. Well, thank you very much. Yeah. thank you for the yeah, they're great. Posing. Of course, yeah, they're great designs, and um, and your stuff um, on on uh, on salvaged wear um, is all the stuff that's on that page up for sale, or do you have like a, like how do people purchase you salvaged on, wear? Do you mean on my website? Yeah, that's right. Uh, uh, virtually everything on my website is stuff which has been made to commission. Um, uh-huh. Most ninety nine percent of what I make is made to commission to an extent that I don't really have time to build stock. So I don't have, on my website, I don't really have a shop, except it's got the links to TeePublic and Redbubble. Uh, uh Um, So no, everything that you see on my website has already been purchased. But I'm always happy. And I quite often get inquiries like, oh, I saw this. How much for something like that? 
Um, yeah. So that's generally the process that I work through now, rather than having stock of going, I've made this item, do you want to buy it? It's people will come to me and go, I would like an item like this. <clears throat> oh, great. I will make it. Okay, so it's more, so your website's more of like an inspiration board. Here's some stuff. Um, well, it's it's a portfolio. It it is. It's ex- exactly what it is. It's a portfolio of stuff I have made. But if you want something similar to this, or you know, you've got your own ideas, then this is this is how I make stuff. This is my style. So yeah, it's it. a portfolio rather than a shop. And then I'm sure, um, like pricing is based on you know the conversation you have with that person. You know how much do you want to spend, and yeah. and here's what I can do for for that that kind of deal. Yeah, I have I have two rates. Uh, depending on whether it is for personal use or uh-huh. whether it's for commercial use. Um, mm-hmm. If it's for commercial use, then I have a, a rate, a daily rate, which reflects a more you know a more professional commercial rate. Um, but if I was going to try and charge that rate for personal use, nobody would ever buy any stuff from me. So (laughs) I had to work out two different rates because if I charged, if I charged a non-commercial rate for commercial work, I'd be massively underselling myself. Of course. Whereas if I charge commercial rate for personal use, then as I said, nobody would go, oh, fuck that. I'm not buying that. That's hugely expensive. So two rates. Um, daily rate, and it usually works on a daily rate plus materials. Got it. That's how I cost an item up. Okay. Well, we're definitely going to continue this conversation off air because it's been a dream of mine for the last few years to have a Mark Cordry costume. Because, <laughs> oh. again, I am not a costumer, and I look at these things. I'm just like, yes, that's what makeshift needs to wear. Oddly enough, I know somebody who can help you. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> who is it? just a guy i know oh good perfect um awesome so now what's the future for mark cordry creations i'm just gonna carry on making shit until i fall apart really i mean as an artist i'd you know it's weird times ahead anyway with the pandemic and obviously what's happening in the uk in terms of trade is not exactly filling a lot of crafters like myself with with hope and joy at the future of being able mm-hmm. to trade internationally um but i you know i'm just going to carry on doing what i'm doing and i will take commissions from anywhere in the world from anyone i've you know i've got commercial commissions and private commissions inquiries coming through fairly regularly um mm-hmm. And as long as I can carry on making stuff, I will, uh, because it's what I enjoy. And as I said at the beginning, it's pretty much the only thing I'm any good at. <laughs> I've got no grand schemes. There's no like, oh, I've got this fantastic plan ahead of me to become uh-huh. you know, an international online influencer of epic proportions and do workshops and stuff like that. I, I just, I'm just a guy with a small workshop making stuff for whoever wants it and that's what i've been doing for 37 years and what i'm quite happy to carry on doing fantastic well i gotta say your your work is absolutely amazing um and i've had such a good time just talking to you about all the things you've done because you've got um some amazing projects in your in your past and and um and with salvaged wear uh, I'm just in awe. Every time I go through the portfolio, it's just absolutely amazing. 
Oh, cheers. Thank you very much. I appreciate that. It's very good. Yeah, of course. Okay, survivors, well, make sure to check out Mark's work, um, including all of his professional wasteland costumes, which is called Salvage Wear. And you can reach all that at markcordry.com. That's M-A-R-K-C-O-R-D-O-R-Y.com. And you've also got a YouTube channel with some tutorials on there. I'm going to link that in the show notes. Um, there's just a handful there. And and um, I've also got Mark's tutorial from 2018. Well, some of it, most of it anyway, um, on the Apocalypse Post. So I'll link that in the show notes below. Um, and I think that's about it. Mark, thanks so much for coming on the show. Oh, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you. I've, I've really enjoyed this. And thank you for inviting me along. Absolutely. And we'll have you back uh, again, probably leading up to Wasteland to maybe uh, help people um, with some like last minute costume tips, maybe? Oh, I'd be more than happy to. That would be great. Yes. Oh, that'd be fantastic. Cool. All right. Well, that's it for this episode, Survivors. Um, stay alive. Hey, Survivors. Makeshift here to remind you that the Apocalypse Post is brought to you in no small way by our Patreon supporters. Join the ranks for early access and exclusive content with support levels now named for fancy Fallout-ridden factions like the $2 per creation Drifter or the $7 Wastelander. Knowing you've got my back has helped me dedicate more time to this channel, spreading love of the post-apocalypse, and less time on stupid real-world stuff. Sign up right now at patreon.com backslash theapocalypsepost.